This episode of the Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the Center for the Study of Apocalyptic and Millenarian Movements. That's CENSAM. You can find details of them at censam.org. Their conference on AI and Apocalypse has a deadline coming up of 16th of February. If you're wanting to present at that, please do check out their website and indeed our website. And also, while you're there, why not check out the database that they've been building with Info which is the inf- information network on new religious movements. Um, otherwise, on with the podcast. Good day, one and all. It's me, David Robertson, and it's him, Christopher Cotter. And it's us, the Religious Studies Project. Our second episode of 2018. It's flying by already. It is indeed, absolutely. I am counting down the days to the summer break. No, I'm joking. (laughs) We're usually four or five weeks in before we start feeling tired and uh, overworked. But I hope you're not too tired and overworked to enjoy our uh, roundtable today. Yeah, it's been quite a while since we've had a roundtable discussion and this was uh, convened. um, It was actually part of the conference programme at the, the BASR of 2017 down in Chester. And it's on the work of E.B. Tyler and his continued legacy. Um, so, you know, uh, this was, who was there. They were all contributors to uh, a book that's mentioned quite often in the, in the podcast itself. But we're, we're aware that it is quite a male perspective that we're getting. Um, yeah, we're aware of these these issues at the RSP, and that sometimes our, our output isn't um, as diverse as it would ideally be. But when it's a case of bringing you an excellent podcast or not bringing it at all, recording the discussions that we can, yeah, well, we, we go for that. We have to record the people that are there, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but if you want to continue the conversation, or if you have an alternative perspective to offer, please do um, write to us or make use of the comments section on the website and social media. You could even write a response for the website or video a response uh, and, and, and add into the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. There. And if you put something up on your own blog, um, if you have your own thoughts, let us know. We'll share it with our audience too. We, we really are keen to make the discussion as broad as we possibly can. I'm going to pass over to... Graham Harvey, Liam Sutherland, Paul Francois Tremlett, Jonathan Jong, James Cox, and Miguel Aster Aguilera, right now. So this is the uh, roundtable for our discussion of uh, Edward Tyler, the anniversary of his of his death, hundred years uh, commemoration, and um, uh, with me, uh, and including myself, we have contributors to uh, to this book, Edward Tyler. Uh, religion and culture. Paul, I'm afraid you had a suggestion for what we should do first. I did. My suggestion as a sort of point of departure was thinking about uh, this Tyler project as, as, as part of a wider question about our relationship to classical theory. Mm. Uh, and I just thought that might be a nice place to begin. What do we do with early scholarship in anthropology of religions, sociology, religious studies, etc.? And, and, and what's our relationship to it? Okay, so would you like to show us how that's done? Tell us. Well, I, I don't think it's a question of, of showing you how it's done. Um, but for me, anyway, being involved in this project um, made me read Tyler within a different way. Uh, I've been used to 
um, a particular particular kinds of accounts of Tyler's work in secondary literature. I'd been used to allowing those works to direct me to primitive culture and a couple of other things that Tyler wrote, and uh, and you know my my Tyler, as it were, was was framed by that secondary literature. This project, I read primitive culture, uh, two volumes. Uh, and a couple of other um, books, the the uh, the book anthropology, a few articles, um, and I started to get a sense of, a, of of that there were other Tylers uh, apart from the sort of canonical account, and I, I found it a really refreshing process. Uh, at the same time as doing that, I was actually involved in a in a slightly different project, which meant that I was also reading the elementary forms of the religious life by Emile Durkheim. And I was reading that also from, you know, the, the, from cover to cover and a few other things by Durkheim. And I, I started to get a very different picture of the kinds of conversations taking place between scholars at the end of the 19th and early 20th century. And yeah, it, it changed my relationship with that theory. And I, I, I think I, I got a hell of a lot out of it, frankly. Um, and I thoroughly recommend it to others. Yeah. yeah um, read that read that material yeah of course you need the secondary literature you, it, it's it's there for a reason and it's helpful but at the same time you you also need to defamiliarize yourself um and engage with the texts as freshly as possible it was also interesting as well as doing some of that rereading i wouldn't say i read both the volumes or the other work but um really more of tyler but also um reading other people's work as, as we were editing the, the book um, and being pointed to other parts to look up and think, okay, so that enriches my understanding of what he was trying to do um, and his the data he was using, the way he used it. But also it's been interesting, a lot of the chapters in the book um, do this comparative thing uh, as, as Jim's does um, and as mine does, uh, other people's do think about Tyler's practice and his argument um, alongside other people's and see that. So that, that, that too is quite an interesting experience seeing, you know, selective reading sometimes by other people um, and seeing how our theories and our work um, arises out of these interesting conversations. So, well, I mean, <clears throat> I came at this very much from a, a quite a different stage in my career because this, uh, I looked at the relationship between modern theory and um, E.B. Tyler for my master's project. So this really came out of uh, from my undergraduate uh, exposure to theory and method, which was one of the elements I find the most interesting. Um, but so I was quite fascinated with um, the bits of Tyler that had been presented. Um, but it was very much in a, as, as uh, Paul has uh, touched on, in a very kind of codified boxed in. Uh, but I find them, I thought there was a lot of explanatory potential there. So I wanted to sort of go back and, and pursue this at a deeper level with my masters. And I think it was when I actually really had to get to grips with um, the, the primary sources, with um, the two volumes of primary of uh, primitive culture, that it really became apparent to me, uh, sort of really uh, just how much can be lost without necessarily being wrong. You know, it's not as um, I think we touch on in the book, it's not necessarily the case that the 
canonical Tyler, as we've called it, is is completely is an inaccurate depiction. It's just a limited one, and a ne- perhaps a necessarily limited one. But it's the fact that when you actually go and read the primary sources in context, it's quite a different uh, it's quite a different experience. And sometimes the the kind of voice, the the nuances, and the, the humanity of some of the uh, early scholars that we look at can really get lost. That they're actually far more persuasive, especially in their own context, than we often give them credit for. So as much as my particular focus has been Tyler, I, I hope that I've at least um, internalised these lessons as in uh, other key theorists that I'm only dimly aware of or only aware of the canonical version of, that I might already begin to suspect that there's more to the picture that I'm missing and at least try to look for that in future. So, so Liam, you discovered Tyler during your undergraduate studies, yeah. which is to say that um, your lecturers put him on the reading list. Yes, that's right? true. And and th- th- for that reason, I think it's kind of surprising that we are surprised that we get a lot out of reading Tyler, because mm-hmm. we must have known this at some level. Well, I say mm-hmm. we, I don't do this kind of work. But like the rest of you around this table, presumably assign Tyler. So mm-hmm. why do you do that? No, I oh, really? okay. <laughs> I, I assign him, but it's a, it's in the same manner that when I was in graduate school in seminars, it was little snippets Nobody assigned a complete work of Tyler or Malinowski or Evans Pritchard or Frazier. Or is oftentimes they wind up in readers where okay, mm-hmm. and this is what they meant, and that's that's what you get. So I, this is one of the fantastic things about um, not only being in the volume, it's also as as you mentioned that going in and actually reading exactly what he said. Uh, which makes a world of difference. Mm-hmm. But what motivates people who design syllabi um, to put the classical, even if snippets of the classical texts, what motivates people who, who construct these syllabi to put them in there in the first place? Is it for pure historical interest? Um, do, do do scholars like yourselves think that there's something of value for today? Um, how, how does it come about that that these people appear in our in our in our in our textbooks. I, I ask this question because in the sciences, this doesn't really happen, right? We, we don't, I mean, I, nobody, nobody, re, we don't assign Darwin's origin really anymore in, in biology classes, right? We, we don't really assign Freud in psychology classes. The question would be why not? <laughs> yeah, well, indeed. Right? But, but I mean, if, if the question is, uh, what is it that we get out of it? I think the question is precisely as you say, why, why and why not? Like what are the pros and cons of, of, putting in or omitting uh, the venerable texts of our intellectual traditions in our, in our syllabi. I, I, I don't think it should be taken for granted that all the things that were written in the past should be jettisoned mm. in a surf. Mm. Like Dan Dennett likes to say that he's never read any philosophy written, I don't know, 60 years yeah. uh, prior or something like that. But like that's ridiculous, right? But but just because those two positions are ridiculous doesn't mean that we don't need reasons for the middle position. Mm. One of the answers to your question, I think, is, is in Liam's phrase, the canonical um, Tyler, that there are a number of canonical figures who are set as, as reading. So we, there has been, I don't know if people are still producing readers, maybe they are, I've, I've produced a couple, um, in which we select short extracts from people, from canonicals, very rarely saying, I think, that the, the issues that they engage with or the methods that they practiced are still current or should, should uh, generate more work. Um, so, well, some of them, some of them do do that clearly, and I think we've demonstrated that very well. That Tyler and, and others um, do clearly um, 
have the potential to, to generate new new questions or to bring us back to the nub of what the question that we're asking now. So in my case, the kind of, what does animism mean? In Jim's mm. case, what does monotheism mean? How do, how do we, how do we, how do they define it? How do the people putatively among whom we research, what do they think those terms mean? Well, I think part of the approach has been, for example, in Eric Sharp's classic uh, comparative religion and history is to provide kind of basis and understanding of what's gone before so that the students don't think that we're just inventing things as they come along and aha here's a new idea because many of the new ideas are old ideas mm -hmm. and they've been reworked and rethought through and so so i think that students need a, a background but of course they also can make the mistake of which we sometimes make is just simply critiquing them in the light of of a hundred and some years later and applying uh, theories and methods that uh, ignoring everything that's come in between. But I do think it's important for to study the classical and his, his important figures uh, in the history. Another thing that, that I've done uh, has been to use these figures because my area of development has been the phenomenology of religion. And many of the key phenomenologists of religion, writing in the early to mid-20th century, um, bounce themselves off, particularly uh, criticizing them for their assumptions about evolutionary ideas, about the development, the advancement, uh, according to almost an application of Darwinian theory in social contexts. And part of the theory there was to say, well, unless we're aware of these presuppositions that influence the way we think, we won't be able to critique our own ways of thinking. So that's another, and then just one other thing. And that is when I've most recently been doing the work in Australia, the practical effect of these writers. For example, the theories of um, Baldwin Spencer and his cohort, Frank Gillen, about the Aboriginal peoples of Australia being the lowest form of human development. And there's a very famous quote that I use that, just like the platypus has gone and faded away, so will these people inevitably uh, be taken over by the more advanced civilizations. And if one thinks about the social con consequences of this idea, it could be argued and has been argued that this way of thinking led to justification for genocide because Aboriginal peoples are going to be made extinct anyway, naturally. So we can take over, and a lot of thinking could be said that these theories are not just in the air, you know, just up in the air, but they actually have social consequences. So these are the three things. I would say they need a foundation, uh, we need to be able to critique them according to other theories, and we need to know the social consequences of our thinking. I mean, the way I encountered Tyler as a student, as an undergraduate, was in a, a class about definitions. Mm -hmm. uh, so you had the yeah. you had the substantive Tylerian definition, yeah. the functional Tylerian definition, mm -hmm. and the pinnacle at that point was you know Clifford Geertz, mm -hmm. um, and, and maybe we read Assad 
uh, Talal Assad yeah, yeah. uh, alongside that if, if the, we had a particularly brave tutor. Which you <laughs> <laughs> probably usually didn't. But that's it. Yeah. Mm. So, mm. That, I mean, that's, and, and so that's, that's the kind of way uh, in which Tyler would, uh, would appear in undergraduate curricula. I think mm. I was thinking of readers. Um, mm-hmm. The last re- anthropology of religion reader I recall is Lambeck's. Michael Lambert. Michael mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And um, I think Tyler's in Yeah. Uh, Tyler's in yeah. there. And, and, it, and, and I think, it, again, it's around this definition, definition of religion, yeah. Uh, yeah, belief in spiritual beings, as mm-hmm. we all know. Um, and, and that's it's part of the, the history of the conversation. Eric mm-hmm. Sharps yeah. is, a, is a good example. Know, yeah. Brian Morris, anthropology. Yeah. Uh, Fiona uh, Bowie. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and Tyler's in, in all of them, one mm-hmm. way or another. Yeah. Yeah. But actually, I mean, that's exactly how I encountered it first. It was in a, it was in a class talking about uh, the definition of religion. Right, and yeah. I, I, you know, because sometimes you're just given a select quote. Hmm. And most, I mean, obviously students can't be interested in every quote that they're fed. But the thing is that sometimes you're only given, you know, <clears throat> you're only given a little piece and then you're not, you know, you're not given the materials to, to read them on your own. You might not be given a chapter to read or anything like that. So in, in my case, though, it really, really sparked my curiosity because I wanted to know a bit more about what this actually meant. And we were, when we went on to explore theories, for example, in, in greater detail, I found that James Fraser, one of the texts we were using was Daniel Paul's Eight Theories of Religion. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's a very, very good introduction, actually, but it actually puts Tyler and Fraser together because they do have similar theories in many respects, but actually quite different. So they just get a chapter in and of themselves mm-hmm. and he rushes through the material quite, because he has to, quite at quite a pace. So the, the issue is that sometimes the nuances can really, really get lost. They can, but undergraduates need to have this mm-hmm. uh, and be, they can be introduced to the primary sources. Mm-hmm. But if they don't have the foundation, you're not going to, to, to ask a first-year undergraduate student to read two volumes of primitive culture just no. with a go. So, I mean, you have to give them a, yeah. a kind of basis, and then they can generate their interest and go further, and they might go to postgraduate uh, work. Well, there's seminars where I have colleagues that assign polls. To yeah, get yeah. Yeah. But it's because at the introductory level, they may be yeah. coming in from other disciplines. That's right. Absolutely. Um, so, Graham, as you mentioned, you have a reader, and this is where I was actually introduced to your work. Another, mm. So, like a stepping stone to many of these larger works, I think they they, they certainly have their place mm-hmm. uh, within being third year into graduate school. Mm-hmm. I think certainly it's time to start reading some of the major heavyweights that we're talking about, mm-hmm. and certainly including mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. But that's interesting that we, even in the book, most of us engage with primitive cultures, um, and we go away from that. But but you went somewhere very different. Mm-hmm. So I'm not even sure I knew that he'd written anything <laughs> before. Well, indeed. I knew he'd been to London to mm. hang out with spiritualists and so on, but, yeah. but the whole idea of going to Cuba and um, yeah. uh, Mexico. So is is that book used by anthropologists? Uh, um, no, m- most of my colleagues, when I, when I told them about this chapter that they were writing, they were like, he did what? I did what? Are you talking about the, the, that Tyler? And I'm like, yes, 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 yeah, yeah. yes. I know, it's all you do. <laughs> yeah. But... But he, it is, it was that one, that book, 
that, that, that was a reader, but it, we used it in first year course many years ago. But it had little introductions. And in the introduction, it mentioned that Tyler went to Mexico mm-hmm. and that he was, he wasn't just an armchair anthropologist, mm-hmm. tried to give the students an idea. No, he's noted for that and <laughs> criticized for that, but he actually did mm-hmm. do some field studies. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The, the Paul's thing is interesting, I think, because I think one way of reading the Paul's book is, as opposed to an introduction to now nine, I believe, mm-hmm. um, theorists of religion. Yes. Of course, the title is nine theories of yes. religion, right? So, so, so what Paul's does with these, uh, with these figures is as paradigmatic examples mm-hmm. of, of mm-hmm. ideas. Yes. Um, and that, that seems like a perfectly reasonable way to, to think about what to do with these classical texts as just mm-hmm. very good examples of maybe a terrible thing, mm-hmm. but nevertheless, very good mm-hmm. examples of, of a thing. Oh, yeah. absolutely. I'm not, um, mm-hmm. I think, I think you're both absolutely correct. There's only, because you're introducing students to these ideas, there's, you can only package them in so many ways. Um, and obviously you cannot uh, cover everything to the same degree. Um, and actually, I think what was interesting is that there's actually, uh, because the period, I think Tyler seems to be one of these figures that people develop a periodic interest in, you know, but that sometimes is not quite as sustained as figures such as, as Durkheim. And uh, it's actually not even necessarily, there's not even necessarily always the scholarship to cover uh, every kind of theorist that has had a, had an input in the process. And no, I, I certainly agree that you cannot, you have to package these ideas in one way or another, and you're always going to leave something out. So uh, I don't mean that as a, a sort of critique of Paul's per se. No, no. You know? well, there does seem to be something different between the way that Durkheim and others in sociology are kind of... the. Founding figures yeah. are much more positively quoted, yes. whereas Tyler, mm. my impression is, is usually set up as okay, that was fine in the nineteenth century, but we don't do that anymore. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> he was stuck in his armchair, and we, even if we know, yeah. mm. you know he didn't do enough of it to, to, yeah. to allow us. To <laughs> yeah, I, I want to mention Anne Kalvik's chapter at this yeah. point because Anne's chapter is all about the seances and and and, and Tyler's interest in spiritualism, and, and I, I think. Don't tap the table, indeed. Well, if the chairs dance, what are we going to do? Um, um, uh, and I, and I, I think, like Miguel's uh, chapter, that it really contributes to, you know, because all I, I, I remember from uh, as an undergraduate student that Tyler didn't do any field work. Turns mm-hmm. out he did actually quite mm-hmm. a lot. Quite a lot. <laughs> uh, and and the, 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 um, well, the, the, the posthumously published uh, note, uh, field work notes about the, the seance. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, that were published by Stocking and uh, and and that uh, Anne Calvig works with. Um, I thought they were really really interesting. And there's a very ambivalent Tyler there about uh, about what's taking place mm. um, that reveal quite a lot about his own uh, maybe his own relationships uh, with mortality, uh, with his class, with his background as a Quaker, mm-hmm. with. His, with what he wants to, to, I think, perhaps believe about science and, and let's say, superstition, um, but at the same time being emotionally and intellectually challenged by by by, by being at these events. Yes, yeah. I think it's, it's like in Mexico, he, things happen in the seances that mm. Calder writes about, and things happen when he's wandering around. I mean, not just whether he gets a taste for certain kinds of food, mm-hmm. but but these experiences that he has. That he he obviously wants to be more celebratory, and then perhaps retreats into this more distant version mm. for whatever reason. I mean, that's a, 
so so yeah it's a kind of interesting multiple tylers that we, mm. we discover and mm-hmm. maybe maybe there wasn't one and even for him that he's a kind of conflicted figure mm. being attracted to things that he then wants to dismiss as superstition or mm. you know they must have been manipulating the table to, mm. for this to happen <laughs> yes. um, so yeah very interesting character Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. Uh, The Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, uh, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even one pound a month um, by going to patreon.com slash Project RS and subscribing. We know that these podcasts are very useful for people who are teaching and people in their learning. So if you can help um, either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the PayPal button on our website, it would be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing you this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia. But now, back to the episode. It's, well, this is like coming back to what gets assigned and why. It's like, well, these are very... He's obviously a genius. Mm-hmm. He's just... As most people that have that intellect, it's very complicated. Mm. It's very complicated. In Mexico, it'd be great to have a photograph of him in a serape, as <laughs> he says he used to wear. I can just see him, you know, mm. <laughs> with a Mexican guy. Yes. <laughs> that would be good. Absolutely. I think there's a quest there in the archives to find such mm-hmm. a picture. So, I think one, one of the things that, that happens, I think, in studies, and I think it's, it's a symptom just of academia, is having a knee-jerk reaction to mm. who these people were. And, well, this is what I learned in a seminar, and he was, Tyler was this, or this other academic, however great they were in their time, and, well, I want nothing to do with them. Mm. I'm going to argue with, without ever actually reading, reading their work. Freud would have a field day with that. Yes. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about the sort of other um, classical thinkers, but but certainly one good reason I think to read the Victorian um, theorists is that like nobody writes like that anymore. <laughs> That's true, right? I mean, we talk. I, I don't want to give the audience the impression that like the two volume dusty primitive cultures, four inches of book, is hard read because it's not a book, mm-hmm. um, but it's a cracking read. And and this is true for so many Victorian theorists. Don't know what happened, really. I don't know why we start writing terribly. Um, but, you know, it isn't true of Tyler. Um, There's so. a wealth of examples that he come, that he brings together, I and mean, whether he does that mm-hmm. in this strange kind of cabinet to curiosities thing sometimes that there's, uh, you know, not quite like um, Golden Bough, but um, but something of that flavour. There's mm-hmm. all these weird and wonderful things, and you think some of it, you know, he's got this, this information data that has been sent to him and he's presenting it back to people to say look humans do amazing things right, right. Um, what are we going to do with that so yeah that's very rich i'm going to be so bold as the person who's not an anthropologist uh, <laughs> to, to suggest uh, that it is entirely durkheim's fault <laughs> well uh, more, more seriously i mean so in 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 scholarship uh we we generally learn about thinkers uh, from from the debates that they get into, right? Mm-hmm. So we read Tyler and Durkheim at the same time. Um, uh, if you work on early Christianity, a lot of what we know about early Christian heresy are from Orthodox people uh, who write about them and not mm-hmm. from them themselves, right? And a similar thing has kind of happened, I think, and has always happened in in 
in academic work. Um, and, and so, but, so because we learn about and teach, um, about figures via these debates, I think what you, what you get necessarily are these, are almost these sort of polarized caricatures, mm. um, which by necessity lack, like richness, depth, and nuance. Um, so, so I don't know if there's something in particular about our, our history per se. I think it has something to do with, with our pedagogical tools, right? And our, our tools of, of the transmission of, of ideas. Is that for, for whatever reason, this is how we transmit ideas by putting people against each other. Well, with, with an anthropology coming. So when I was an undergrad, I, I never heard of any of these folks just very slightly. I mean, uh, going into graduate school at phase one at the MA level, uh, one of my people who turned into one of my professors, not on my, not my advisor on my supervisory committee. But when I told him I was interested in religion, the first thing came out of his mouth was, you must really love Durkheim. <laughs> that was, and I was like, Durkheim, who's Durkheim? <laughs> and, but then it's curious as to why Durkheim. Mm. But it's like he, he becomes like the champion of actually studying religion where apparently Tyler's dealing with other things. Mm. So that's, I mean, that's kind of understandable in the 20th century, I think, because if you have a book that's called The Elementary Forms of Religious Life mm -hmm. and then you have a book called Primitive Culture, like there's a kind of political uh, zeitgeist, which means that you might want to recommend one book and not the other <laughs> for purely, uh, optics reasons. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's also, fault. But there was also the thing about the armchair allegation that in the mm -hmm. early 20th century, mid 20th century, sure. that, that a whole Oxford style is mm -hmm. just put aside, right. demonized in mm -hmm. that sense. So, so then you, I don't know, maybe it becomes impossible to, to, to find that other Tyler again, uh, after all, stockings, notes, you know, they're, they're just, there's a few bits of a diary or whatever it was. Mm. Somebody else has to, to re represent it. But Durkheim didn't go to Australia. Exactly. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 No. Yes. He, he focused on one case study and drew all of the right. conclusions about all human religion from it. Right. <laughs> um, Brilliantly. Brilliantly, yes. I, I, I think we should probably get to a Durkheim bashing. <laughs> But does sociology have to do that? I mean, can't sociology stay in the in the study? And what I was trying to do in in my paper was to underscore that Tyler, like many others, had certain criteria for determining the validity of a statement. You might say so in the issue of the question of whether humans were originally monotheistic uh, or whether they were at lower levels and developed and developed higher on a social evolutionary s scale. Um, what I tried to argue was that Tyler had already decided the answer to this, not on the basis of his empirical investigations, although he cited empirical investigations, mm -hmm. as so did Lang. Both did, uh, and so did uh, um, uh, Wilhelm Schmidt. Wilhelm Schmidt was fantastic in his ethnographies, but he started from a position and he all proved his position. So uh, one, one way that I tried to look at these influential scholars is to try to help students see these fundamental starting points uh, and show how, therefore, the starting point 
produces the conclusion, and then examine how would it be uh, possible to insert actual empirical evidence into this in order to uh, determine the 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 value of their arguments. That's one thing. But then the other point I tried to make in in the paper was that all of these things, all of these discussions, at least in the study of indigenous peoples, uh, is about people who are um, just there as sort of laboratory uh, agents, and not really agents themselves, but they're there to be studied to prove the theory with which I began. And what I've tried to do is to say, uh, if we look at some of the ways in which indigenous people have been depicted as passive, as uh, powerless, as incapable of thinking, basically, uh, or of dreaming or whatever um uh and they 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 just do things because they're caught in this horrible existence and they have to solve their problems uh, uh but actually to let them have the voice or a voice a prominent voice in how these questions are addressed and answered and to my mind, if you go back to Tyler or any of these classical theorists, one can begin looking at ways which will impact on the way we do our own studies. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is an important way of using these uh, these scholars. Mm-hmm. A point that uh, another contributor to the book likes to, uh, Martin Stringer, likes to point out is the fact that um, it's very easy to classify Tyler in certain respects because because he was writing at what was still quite an early stage in the in the generation of the social sciences, that he, in some ways, lacked the kind of language to actually discuss some of the things he was wanting to get at. So one of the things that uh, can get quite... Um, actually, reading the text and then comparing that with the way Tyler is often interpreted is he's interpreted as someone who's just talking about individuals um, who are just kind of reflecting in that, you know, the term savage philosopher kind of makes you think of an individual. Um, if I actually recall the text accurately, I think he actually only uses this expression once or twice. I don't think he actually uses that, it very often. Right. Yeah. It's quite an overplayed term, like because it's become <clears throat> the term to explain Tyler, but he actually only refers to it once or twice. Um, I think something that really gets missing, uh, Martin likes to talk about the fact that some of what Ty- Tyler was fascinated with language and with, uh, and with different groups, always remember that it was, these were ethnological examples. So, Sometimes these things were far more social than they sometimes appear. And um, to, to relate that to the kind of work that uh, is going on in the cognitive sciences of religion now, it's about very, very kind of ingrained. You seem to be talking about like cognitive capacities. This is where, you know, the psychic unity of mankind comes in. You know, what are sort of patterns of thought that are widely shared? But behind this is very much a social context. So there's a brilliant quote where he talks about the fact that when people encounter dreams and visions, these are always in a very, very specific local form. If you're a Catholic, you're encountering dreams of the Virgin Mary, who will be, and this is produced by a social context. So for example, uh, a first century Catholic, or uh, in as much as you can talk about Catholicism at that time, (laughs) is not encountering the kind of a, a 16th century Catholic vision of the Madonna with all of the tiaras and the the stylized the stylized depiction of the Madonna has already become an important part, and that's inherently social. Uh, what he's talking about, uh, if I may just uh, expand on one point, um, in terms of his, uh, he actually like at one point tried to explain the uh, evolution of the concept of ideas 
uh, you know, we, we take, that's a word we take for granted, idea. But actually trace that to, uh, I think it was Democritus, certainly one of the Greek philosophers, I think one of the pre-Socratic Greek philosophers, and actually tried to explain this as a product of a sort of animistic culture where uh, ideas were, in, or what would he, be, what would be termed ideas were actually encountered as almost personalities and this and try to really locate this in the context of Greece itself. One thing that that appears at least when we talk about Tyler's projection theory out of the inner individual, mm-hmm. you have dreams, you see somebody die, breath goes out of them, it seems to imply that there's a spirit or a soul and there's a body and a soul and so on. Um, uh, that seems to me at least that what appears lacking, at least in this part of it, is the social context, the ritual context in which these dreams or visions or uh, relationships with the dead or ancestors is all, in a sense, socially validated, socially constructed, and then becomes lived out in ritual contexts. So, for example, the work I've been doing uh, on Australian Aboriginal uh, religions in uh, some 1930s, as this man I've been using, uh, looking at, T.G.H. Stradlow, has discovered, was that the, the ancestors uh, who then went back into the ground after creating and then come forth again in the rituals uh, are actually reincarnated in their uh, ancestors but these reincarnation in the ritual now become the original totemic <coughs> ancestor. Mm-hmm. So, but, but none of this, it seems to me, would make sense to, it's very difficult to make sense of anyway, but to make sense of it in strictly individualistic mm-hmm. ways of thinking, it has to be understood in the whole way the society is constructed uh, and the relationships that people have amongst one another within the society and with other groups out with that society. So, um, uh, it's not directly related to, to, to your question, but it is sort of looking at this idea, if you say that Tyler was using a projection theory mm-hmm. that is projecting out of the individual experience to create this, uh, it seems to me if insofar as he did that, he overlooked and was deficient in the context of the social construction out of which these experiences occur. I'm not saying the experiences don't occur, but I'm saying that it can only be interpreted and, and, and in a sense, uh, made useful and meaningful in the social context. But I think that's what Tyler shows us about the history of anthropology. Yeah. On the, at the beginning, Tyler and others are collecting instances of beliefs or practices of X mm-hmm. kind, of mm-hmm. Y kind, mm-hmm. and then plotting where they are yeah. in populations. Mm-hmm. And as, as, as people start to look at the, the kind of methodologies, uh, the evolutionist methodologies, then you get that moment where ethnography starts to become, you know, perhaps following, uh, perhaps, perhaps following bias in the, in the, United, in the United States, right. The idea that rather than collecting and arranging ethnographic data in that way, one should contextualize mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. rather than see it as individual mm-hmm. units that mm-hmm. have that kind of distribution, mm-hmm. uh, but collect, uh, mm-hmm. understand them as holistically uh, interdependent with one mm-hmm. another. In mm-hmm. other words, ethnography, field work, going mm-hmm. to a particular place, staying there mm-hmm. for a, a, a sustained 
uh, period of time in which one learns a language and, and understands mm -hmm. how these mm -hmm. how this data is actually all connected mm -hmm. relationally mm -hmm. and that that, mm -hmm. that that's what mm -hmm. that's partly what studying a figure does does isn't it yeah. it, it allows you to have access to the history of a discipline yeah. in a slightly different light and and, and mm -hmm. see it unfold well, well, sorry i think go ahead sorry we i think we've come to the end of our um the time allotted for this conversation um um, and that may be actually a perfect point at which to stop this thought about um, the reasons why these classic figures remain important and what we might pick up from them. So uh, thank you all for joining in the conversation. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you. you. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for our, to our audience as well for <laughs> participating. It's excellent to hear that discussion uh, for the second time there because uh, we were both in the room at the time indeed and uh, but don't forget you can watch it as well this is uh, you know we're still trying to bring more and more video content so this uh, the full discussion is is uh, is up on our youtube page fantastic thanks so much for that david and to everyone who participated and i know that that book um, will make an excellent addition to any library uh, because we've we all you know we're familiar with tyler and religion is belief in spiritual beings and, and that's basically it <laughs> yeah well that's you know it shows how how uh, little progress we've made in the uh, a little over a hundred years since um primitive culture was published and we're still talking in, in these terms you know the whole new atheist debate was framed around the discussion of belief in in spiritual beings so, exactly well because that that's the only real religion david yes well this is the problem isn't it yeah <laughs> this is the problem um well, just to flag up next week's podcast, um, it's another interview that Dan Gorman's recorded for us. Um, we haven't heard from Dan in a while. Um, and this is on African-American spiritual churches with um, Margarita Simon Gilori. So we're looking forward to welcoming Dan back Thank and another much, topic man. that we haven't maybe covered as much in the RSP. So looking forward to that. So uh, don't forget to come back for our Ops Digest on Wednesday and don't forget to come back for our response on Thursday and uh, you've heard about next week's episode already I don't think there's anything else we need to say Chris is there have no, I forgotten no, anything just thank you very much for listening <laughs> the Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions the North American Association for the Study of Religion and the International Association for the History of Religions the RSP is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association SCIO a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SCO 47750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson and our managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget you can support the project by using our Amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at Patreon.com slash Project RS. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.